Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jamie Loftus is a comedian, Emmy-nominated TV writer, animator, and podcaster. She's worked as a staff writer on Teenage Euthanasia, Robot Chicken, and Star Trek Lower Decks. She's written and starred in her own web series for Comedy Central, and she has written and hosted several popular limited-run podcasts, among them My Year in Mensa, Lolita Podcast, Cast, and Ghost Church, all the while co-hosting the Bechdel Cast. Her first book, Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs, is part investigation into the cultural and culinary significance of hot dogs, in part travelogue, documenting a cross-country road trip, researching them as they're served today. Her book comes out in May 2023, and Loftus sat down with me to talk about her life and career. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I know we're in late stage social media era. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed that that is that still goes viral is when people post like nine different things and or three different things and they say you can only keep one. Oh so, yes, yes, yes. So if you can only keep one for the rest of twenty twenty three. Uh-huh. Would you keep podcasting or hot dogs? Uh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of depends on the day, but let's go hot dogs for the day. That's timeless. <laughs> timeless option. <laughs> you know, you have the book Raw Dog that's coming out this May. Yeah. Have you found yourself eating more hot dogs over the course of the past year than you had in your entire life? Yeah. I mean, the research process, it was like, I had to eat a ton all the time, but then after I finished, like, I just didn't shake out the way I thought at all. I thought by the end I would, you know, like be vegan and like (laughs) in this new chapter of my life, but I, it sort of just led to me eating more hot dogs than I normally would. And now Mm -hmm. I have, I would say like one or two a week as just a part of my life. Usually I'll like make one at home and then I'll like get one as a treat. And then when I'm traveling, it's like, I want to get a local hot dog everywhere we stop. So there's been an uptick recently. Where do you stand on Fenway Franks versus Dodger dogs? Oh, Fenway Franks, no contest. Dodger dogs suck. (laughs) Um, Easiest, easiest decision I've ever made in my life. Dodger Ducks, even Dodger fans will tell you that they're not particularly very good. And there's so much drama with like them switching vendors and all this stuff. I mean, all the meat production stuff is a nightmare, but Dodger Dogs, it's like a special kind of nightmare and it's not even good. So you're like, what are we even doing here for such a mediocre hot dog? My Franks are great. Uh, That's the power of branding, is it not? That it's true. Yeah, that they'll, I mean, I feel like some of the most pop, like powerful, powerful hot dog forces, it's like not actually a very good 
product all the time, but it's sometimes like, I think in LA, like Dodger dogs and, and pinks are both like heavily marketed as like the hot dog when you can get a way better hot dog for less money right outside of Dodger stadium. And you can get a way better hot dog from a street car, you know, five blocks away from pinks, but they don't want you to know that. <laughs> Have you ever had a, an irrational fear over hot dogs? No, um, which maybe I should have by now, but no. <laughs> I'm like not afraid of it. I, I was like, if they were going to get me, they would have by now. So when you decided to go to Emerson College, did you go there knowing that it was a place to go to be in show business? Or was that not even a thought in your mind when you went? I just knew that I wanted to write. That was about all I was sure of when I went to college. And so I kind of like, I mean, it's like funny to think that I thought this was a practical decision, but I was like, oh, how do you like, what is writing that isn't, you know, getting an English degree or something that didn't feel as actionable? And I was like, screenwriting. And that was like kind of the only place or one of the only places that I could, you know, like got a scholarship to go to where it felt like, oh, well, that's like specific enough that I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I did a bunch of, I just, I, I just knew I liked to write. And I didn't know it was like a school that, you know, like really emphasized comedy or anything like that. I sort of found that all that out when I when I got there. But I'm glad I did. I ended up doing like a ton of comedy and radio there, which is kind of weirdly how things have like gone since I got out of the school. If I didn't know anything about you, but I knew that you did radio in college, it'd be like, oh, yeah, of course you'd be a podcasting juggernaut. Like you were, you were learning it at, at college. It's weird. Cause it's like at the time it was, cause I ended up like minoring in radio cause I was just there so much and I really loved it. But it was like, at the time they were like, well, there's no jobs in this industry and like, you're kind of fucked, but like, we hope you're having a nice time. And they are right in like a lot of the traditional sense, but like they, there was no real, it was weird. Like they, we knew, pod, I feel like radio and podcasts weren't considered like one in the same when I was in school, which is weird now because it is like so obviously what it is. Right. Wasn't podcasting just starting to take off at that point? Yeah. And like the mid 2010s, like I listened to podcasts, but I didn't think of it as like the same thing of what mm-hmm. I, cause I was doing like, you know, hit the post kind of like DJing where it was kind of like not about very, I mean, not to be reductive to that job. It just was like really, really brief of like it's another song from iron and wine because it was an adult (laughs) alternative station and but yeah it wasn't until I got out that I was like oh this is actually like pulling from the same same skill set in a way that's way more fun yeah did that did the desire initially to write was that influenced at all I know your father was a newspaper guy yeah I mean it was it was definitely a lot from my dad I liked I mean I he's a sports writer and so like I was very disinterested disinterested in sports but like <laughs> writing we were able to meet in the middle on um yeah he worked at uh, he worked at the Patriot Ledger he worked at the same um local paper for like 30 something years in Quincy um, in Quincy Mass baby <laughs> uh and then my mom uh was a teacher 
So okay. it was all very like, uh, they're very encouraging and uh, me and my brother like writing and making stuff. But being at Emerson and then, you know, getting involved in radio, even if it was just, you know, playing the, the adult alternative hits of the, <laughs> yeah. of the mid 20, 20 teens. Uh, yeah. That, you know, Emerson also has a rich history of comedy. So yeah. did, did being exposed to that, like pull, like suck you in or, or even just being mm-hmm. in Boston because Boston has a, has such a rich comedy culture for, for up and comers. Yeah. I mean, it, it worked out kind of perfect. I didn't, I mean, I didn't go to school thinking that I wanted to do, I didn't think that I would be like outgoing enough to do it. Like I did whatever I did like drama club in high school and stuff like that. But I sort of was like, but I'm not, you know, there's a lot of performing arts students at Emerson and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. They're so loud. Uh, Like uh, I've watched that oboe clip. Come on. I mean, (laughs) if that's not someone who needs to be on stage, that's history. It's God. That clip is so weird. I, I really like, yeah, I was like a dork in high school. I did like every dorky thing it was possible to do and loved it but yeah once I was in college I just didn't think that I that would be something I would be good at but there was a lot of comedy at Emerson and over the course of my like semester abroad was like slowly like I think I want to try this but I'm too embarrassed for anyone I know to see it so I like tried it while I was away and it went well enough that I'm like all right I'll try it again when I get home and so it was like sort of a year of me like waffling on whether I wanted to do stand up. Where were you, where were you abroad? And I was in the Netherlands. Okay. Yeah. There's some and good comedy in Amsterdam. I did. I did. My first time doing stand up was in a barn, <laughs> but it went pretty well. Okay. Um, and so I like started slowly doing it when I got home, I joined a sketch group. I think the best thing that happened was like starting to do comedy outside of school because that community was so weird and like super competitive and also not funny because everyone's 20 and no one knows what they're fucking doing so like getting out of that and getting Mm -hmm. into boston comedy was like it felt like a really cool time to be there it felt like they were were really receptive to weird stuff there weren't really that many young women in the scene at that time so it felt like there was it was, I mean, which is good and bad because it felt like, oh, there's like a place for you, but also it's going to suck a lot of the time. And so like I met my my closest friend is like another girl my age. I met doing stand up in Boston and we like glommed on to each other and um, we're neighbors now in California. Like it's oh, nice. um, yeah, but but um, I, I felt very lucky to come up in Boston when I did. They were very it was mostly like a really supportive community. Was your first TV credit laughs? Yes. <laughs> um, laughs. Yeah. Laughs was a short-lived uh, <laughs> clip show that ran on Fox stations on late on Saturday nights. That was how I got a manager. Was really? Laughs. Yeah. Laughs. Well, how, but actually, how did you get on laughs? Um, I did this. I think now defunct like festival in new york i Mm -hmm. forget what it was called but it was like 
basically like kind of a pay to play festival. Okay. Um, and I guess I did well enough that they're like, Hey, do you want to come back to New York at your own expense again? And like, <laughs> maybe you'll be on local TV at night. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. I was like 21 when I did that. I think or maybe 20 and either just out of school or barely, I don't, I don't remember, but yeah. So then I, I got the clip on, I don't think you could even watch it in Boston. So it all felt very like vague the material's not very good, but I got like, I was working at the time I was working two full-time jobs when I was first out of school. I worked at the Boston Globe and um, an improv theater. I go to the club in the morning and the theater at night. And um, I got an email from my like current manager who was just like, hey, saw you on laughs. <laughs> and at first I was like, this is a scam, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. Uh, were you working at Improv Boston or Improv Asylum or somewhere else? Improv Boston. I was okay. there. I started as a bartender uh, ticket taker. And then it was like one of my first sort of full-time jobs as like a programming assistant. But it was great because I just like, I my priority was like I wanted to take classes there for free. Um, so I got through the program there. I got to teach sketch there for a little while, which was funny because it was like, 22 and teaching you know people that are like hmm I don't know (laughs) (laughs) but it was fun I like they were they were really they were really good to me and what were you doing at the globe exactly that was another job I kind of like lucked into because I was writing at this punk blog called Alston Pudding um because through like my radio friends I was really into like all the local punk bands at the time Mm -hmm. and I like volunteered at Olsen Pudding and would would write stuff for them. And it would usually be like really goofy stuff. So off of that, I guess that like someone at the Globe, it was like a very hard to explain because it doesn't really exist anymore, but it was like a, a, they're kind of clickbait vertical. And they're like, we need some young people to write okay. some clickbaity, like local pieces. It was not like particularly hard journalism. Okay. So but it they wasn't were like, like you were in the paper. It was more like you were on the website. I was on the website and then, yeah, every once in a while I'd be in the paper and it was okay. like a big deal, but it was, yeah, it was kind of, um, the, the globe at the time was testing out a content sweatshop for 22 year olds. Mm. And, um, I actually Sorry, did I have that. a good time there. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I, um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a bit messy and I ended up getting fired anyways. And then I moved to California. So. Right. When people talk about getting fired for a tweet, you can actually say, no, I was fired for a tweet. Yes. Before it was cool. I've heard you talk about that move to LA was, was not easy for you. Yeah, it was pretty, I mean, it, it sucked. I had, I had a rough first year and change, which is not, you know, unusual, (laughs) but yeah, I, I moved out. I didn't really know anybody. I was 22 and by myself. And so it was just like, it was a rough first year. My mental health was not great. Uh, and that sort of reached ahead. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it was a difficult first year, but I did like the comedy scene a lot. And I like the few friends I did make were through comedy. Um, and so once I found, I was just looking for a situation where I could like do stand up and support myself doing literally whatever else. And so I ended up being a fact checker at Playboy magazine for almost a year, which was like 
weirdly like a pretty fine job. I kind of liked it, but yeah, I'm like mental health wise. It was, it was like a really, really tough year. Um, I'm still surprised that I stayed. How did you, how did you get through that? I mean, honestly, like my, my support system back home was so huge and, um, sort of keeping me afloat for that first year. And then the few friends that I, I did make were so kind. And like, there was, I was in the hospital uh, a couple times and like, they were like the, <laughs> the friends I had were, were really, really sweet. And, um, my family was supportive and like respectful of even when they were like, um, are you sure you want to be there still? Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, respecting my decisions and, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I I feel really lucky to have great family and friends, and they were, I think, um, holding their tongue on a lot of like, get the fuck out of there, which probably <laughs> is what I should have done, but um, I really didn't want to. I wasn't ready. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't know if I would do it different now, but um, I'm glad I stayed. And things after yeah, a year and a half <laughs> kind of started to to get better and. Once I, I mean, it was like once I got my OCD diagnosis thing and like had the right kind of therapy and medication, things definitely got way better. Did Playboy offer good health insurance in that regard? No, they paid me ten dollars <laughs> an hour with no benefits. Ooh, um, yeah, I fact work, check that. It's a nightmare. Like I, uh, but I, I was again super lucky that when one time when I went to the emergency room. I met a hospital therapist who was like, who kind of like, I guess, took pity on me and and gave me um, exposure therapy and just like general therapy at like a ridiculous discount for about six months. And that really turned things around. And I'm always grateful to him. He was he was really good to me. Yeah, we always... (laughs) It's amazing how just one person with compassion or empathy can really turn things around. Truly. Yeah. I, I still, I'm like, <laughs> I always want to reach out to him, but I'm afraid he's going to be like, okay, now I would like all the money. <laughs> <laughs> I like 1% of the book sales. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like free ads on every podcast. <laughs> I guess I, I mean, I do owe him big time, literally and figuratively, but it was, it was really like, um, that was really, I, I don't think I would have um, been able to stay if I hadn't had that support from him. In terms of breaking into the comedy scene in LA, were you, mm-hmm. were you at that point in time, were you doing traditional standup or were you focused more on these? How do you describe them? <laughs> <laughs> just like the nasty Andy Kaufman-esque, Andy Kaufman-esque bits <laughs> where you're you're just um, doing something outlandish uh it was I always even when I was in Boston I was always trying to do both it just felt better I don't know yeah in, in Boston like there it was it was great because there was kind of more breathing room and it felt like the stakes were like lower you could experiment a lot and people were like interested in it it was fun um and then yeah when I went to LA I sort of was like I I just want to do anything I want to perform anywhere I can and so if I could find a show that wanted me for stand-up I would do that if I could find a show at like the clubhouse that is like you know 4 p.m on a Monday that wants me to like do a 
milk enema, I would do that. And like whatever it was, I was just like excited (laughs) to be there and to feel like a part of the scene there. And Mm -hmm. it was cool because I think my first two years there, I was trying to like blend those two things. I feel like I always, I don't know how to what degree of success, but like I'm always trying to like blend stuff together that I like doing. And so it's like doing bits that start as stand up and then turn into performance arty stuff, which is how I met Christina Catherine Martinez because we were very like copacetic in that way. Yeah, it was just like there there were more people in LA who were like interested in doing that kind of work and finding the lyric Hyperion, the like uh, original, I guess, um, iteration of it and like finding a place that was also not just like supportive of that kind of work, but would like make it affordable to do it and like mm-hmm. wanted you to workshop stuff and like you didn't it didn't need to be perfect the first time and just that kind of community was really cool i remember like one of my first shows i did was at the use the now dead ucb inner sanctum and i saw natalie palomitas this was like early 2016 and like she like blew my mind and then was <laughs> so nice and has always been so supportive and it was just like really cool to see people like that that you're like oh you can like actually do this and you know the less self-conscious you are the better so yeah like my first couple years I was just trying to figure out like how I could balance between between the two and it was it was exciting and then once I found the lyric they were really like oh you should start you know developing shows and like start doing that and and that was also cool I don't know it was fun what inspired you initially to do stunts like the infinite jest feast I just think they're funny. I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like at the at the time when it was like, especially the Infinite Jazz one, I kind of like wish I had not capitulated as much as I did, and like, because I did, because there that went like, it randomly went viral after I'd been doing it for like a year, oh, wow. and yeah, I was like been doing it to an audience of like my friends back home for a year, and then all of a sudden they're like this is a thing and I had to do these interviews about it I'd never done anything like that really and they're I don't know I felt like they were uh looking for like an a smart like commentary reason I was doing it (laughs) and I was kind of like and so at the time I was like Mm -hmm. oh I look back at those interviews I'm like what just say you don't know Uh, (laughs) yeah just just say you thought it was funny I wish I, but I was like having a melt. I was like, yeah, it's a commentary on feminism and something like that. But it was just like, I worked at the bookstore and people bought the book a lot. And, you know, it was kind of like annoying. I'd never read the book. So mm-hmm. I'm like, it's not a value judgment on the book. I don't know what the fuck it's about. Still, it seemed like a funny thing to do. And I had a fun, I had fun doing it until I feel like that was a lot of stuff I was doing then where it's like, I had a lot of fun and then it made me sick and then I stopped. <laughs> but was there was had you seen someone as a kid do outrageous things for laughs and you're like oh i didn't realize you could do it that way um i guess i'm trying to think of where i i don't know it wasn't inception they didn't like go into your dreams and go you're gonna do (laughs) disgusting things yeah I don't really know. I feel like I was always kind of game for that stuff as a kid. I don't know what the internal logic is, but I do know that 
when the the second I started doing comedy, I was doing that kind of stuff. Like that was like just what I thought mm-hmm. was funny. I do think like when especially in my like college sketch group, which I just had like a horrible experience and I did not have a good time at all. But pretty early on, it was like it's so weird. I really hope it's not still like this. Um, but at the time, it was like there would be you know like a group of twelve people and there's two women and all the parts suck and so it felt like well if this is what I think is funny anyways and I can eat a whole can of dog food they cannot make me a girlfriend in a sketch if I uh-huh. if I can eat a whole can of dog food that means I get to do something and I can't be dainty. Right. Or or like you, they can't like disappear you right. if you can do something that no one else can, which is a, like, again, I, don't know, I think about that a lot now where it's like, oh, you have to do something like you, I'm willing to kill myself to not to like be a part of this basically, because there was no, I mean, there were only so many ways that it felt like you could be meaningfully included in, I mean, at that time, at least. Um, yeah in the in the mid 2010s 100 years ago um <laughs> well you were born in the late 20th century it's true i the know late 1900s such a different thing <laughs> um but yeah it was just like well this is the way that i can get stuff in and mm-hmm. it was fun to like be like okay here's the gross thing and how can i write to it in a way that like is you know no i i sort I, of I, coherent no i like that I mean, it's it's not just the 2010s. I think throughout comedy history, especially with like improv and sketch, if you're not a white guy, you can get pigeonholed, or if you're not a straight white guy, you can get pigeonholed into certain characters and scenes because they only see you as what you look like, whereas the straight white guy can play anything in there. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's still, I mean, and like... I know that that is still true to a large extent, but yeah, right. it, it, like I at least do think it's better than it was ten years ago because it was it was like not not very fun, <laughs> to, and 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 to feel like you're it's constantly you know like run like a meritocracy like we're voting in sketches, but you're like you know sometimes there's only one other person in the room who knows what you're talking about, which also comes up in like writers' rooms and other stuff. So I guess in that way, it was right. preparing for the real world. So according to your bio and your wiki and stuff, it seems like things turned around for you in LA in a big way in 2018. There were a number of things that happened. You had your Comedy Central web series, Irrational Fears, which I subtly referenced earlier. Uh, (laughs) You worked for Robot Chicken. Um, You were a consultant on the movie All About Nina, which I watched because I love watching movies about stand-up comedians. And oh uh, and you also were part of the um, short-lived comeback of Super Deluxe. I was, yeah. That Which was... of those things happened first in the in the dominoes Ooh. that started to fall for you? I think it was Super Deluxe that happened first, and that happened because one of the directors there, this amazing person, Stephanie Ward, she's the best. Um, she saw me eating dog food at a show. Um and was like um, as at the you satellite, had to do you had to eat dog food. That's, if it was twenty seventeen, I was eating dog food in public all the time. And she saw me at a show at the satellite. Um, I feel so old. I'm like I think I was doing power violence at the satellite. Both like things that don't exist. Feeling, yes, uh, anymore. But um, the people still do. Uh, but yeah, she saw she saw me do that and was like, "Hey, we're looking for someone who will do 
disgusting things on camera. And I was like, great. So I started doing stuff with them in like late 2017. Um, And like the money was horrible, but it was like kind of the first time that I had like an actual audience, which was cool and like unusual. And it felt encouraging that it was like, I got to write my own stuff and then do the nasty stuff and do the nasty things. And it felt like, you know, like I collaborating with Stephanie was really fun. And there were so many cool, talented people and a lot of women uh, working at that company then. And it, it felt like at the time it was like the most creatively free that I'd ever felt. And also people were like, watching it um which was cool so that was really fun um i definitely like (laughs) fucked my body up a lot there but i don't regret it it was really fun did you know about the earlier super deluxe oh yeah yeah because i i mean i was like a huge and am a huge maria bamford fan and so i like remember her like watching her stuff on super deluxe in like i think high school would have been the first uh iteration of it and Um, yeah, the Maria Bamford show is like, ooh, huge. Yeah. Okay. So I remember the first one. And so it felt like it felt, yeah, it felt like an honor to be, um, included in the second shorter iteration. It was a good year. We had a good run. Did you, were you surprised at all that it, that it didn't last? No. I mean, it was like, it was disappointing. It really, but, um, it was the, I guess it was like my, I think my first experience with them being like, well, this doesn't make enough money. So you have to, you know, go do your nasty shit somewhere else. It was, it was, yeah, it was a bummer that that happened, but I, I, um, I don't know. It's really depressing when stuff like that happens. I was really sad about it. And cause we were making some cool stuff there, but um, everyone's kind of like moved on to do other, other stuff. Um, which is nice. And then you got to be more of a leading lady in the Comedy Central web series. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, and another, like, one of the first things that I felt like cre- had I had creative control and my, my creative input was, like, important to um, to what we were doing. And those, those shorts were so fun to put together. And I got to, like, work with some of my favorite comedians doing it I got to like work with John Daly and Maggie May and just like people I really admired um and yeah it was that was super fun of course you know we've talked for a half hour and I haven't even touched on the thing that most people know you for which is your pod which is your many podcasts yeah you know it's the one of the things that I noticed first off is you you definitely have more of a strategy to them. And I don't know if this this comes from the journalism background or not, but as opposed to someone like me who just has one idea and runs it into the ground for 400 and some odd episodes, you have mm-hmm. a, you have an idea. Iconic. <laughs> you execute it and then you get out. Yeah. <laughs> I uh I hope I get yeah, I I kind of prefer to do it that way, but also I I like I admire when anyone can run a marathon because I feel like I'm doing all these tiny sprints and when, when someone's like truly doing a marathon of a project, it's like so amazing to me because I feel like I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I could last that long. I don't know. Well, but I mean, how long could you keep going with the Mensa bit or how much more oh, could yeah. you really talk about Lolita without, <laughs> without 
getting de- it's, super depressed, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, with Lolita, it was like, I got super depressed uh, <laughs> doing it for as long as I did. That that seems to me uh, a fitting way to tie you in with uh, with Sarah Marshall, because mm-hmm. the Lo- Lolita project seems like a you're wrong about project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was like I was a fan of Sarah's before we ever met. And like with I mean, I listened to a lot of you're wrong about when I was putting together Lolita podcast, I listened to their Amy Fisher episode a couple of times because she's like the Long Island Lolita. And there's, mm-hmm. so I, I got into You're Wrong About while I was putting that show together. And then I think that show was like pretty obviously influenced by it. And I just, I mean, I loved Sarah's work. I loved Michael's work. And um, yeah. And then when Lolita podcast came out, she like heard it and was like, I like it. It's like, mm-hmm oh shit it was really exciting and yeah I mean I'm very influenced and inspired by what Sarah does I love her work so much do you do you go ever go into a project with like big aspirations or goals of like this podcast is going to change the way people talk about Age disper age disparities in uh in relationships or or comic mm. strips about middle aged women or or spiritual or how people are going to think about mediums. I don't know. I I, I don't really no because I feel like then I I would just be constantly disappointed. <laughs> um, but I do. I have like it has been nice. Um, well, like one of the things I really like about podcasts is like people can come to it whenever they come to it and like you know i get messages about lolita podcast now like you know two and a half years after it came out of like oh i just found this and it really changed the way i think about this or like contextualize Mm -hmm. this um you know event in my life um and so i like that it's not yeah it's like a durational thing where i don't know like if if anything is like a drop in the bucket for changing the wider perspective that would be great but also it feels i don't know it's like i i I do like i mean it's like the best down the worst part of it is like what a personal one-to-one kind of like medium it feels like um but i feel like that does mean that podcasts can like really affect someone on a personal level and i think that that is um just as powerful in in a lot of ways than like I don't know. I don't think my shows are going to change the law or the world, but it's like, it, it, it works for one person and it helps them out. Um, even through like a tough time or whatever, then it's like, I'm happy to, and that's, I feel like I'm doing what I, what I want to do. You're absolutely right. And I, even as I was asking the question, I, I was second guessing myself because obviously it's much like when you were being asked about the infinite jest video like i'm but trying, to, I'm try, to, I'm trying to get you to come come up with some brilliant commentary when really it's just <laughs> oh i had this idea and i did it and also it's like always the same and also i mean what do i do i do a one-on-one podcast and i and i do okay. it i do it this way because i feel like you know anyone can have a topical podcast where they talk about the news of the week but then that's gone and when you listen to it years later and you're like why am i even listening to this whereas yeah. a conversation with this an individual about their hopes and dreams and why they have their hopes and dreams that's timeless 
Yeah. And it's like, when it comes to you, it's the right time. I don't know. Yeah. Like, that's, I mean, that's something I really like about your work is like, you can, you can just feel when someone wants to be there, you know, and you can also really, I, I feel like with podcasts, especially you can really feel when someone's heart is not fully in it. <laughs> um, even if the reporting is good or like mm-hmm. the interview is good in a technical sense, like you can just feel, I don't know. That's why I feel very lucky that I've gotten to have um, a lot of, I mean, almost complete like creative control over the topics that I pick. Cause I feel like if I was not interested in it, it would be very, very obvious. Uh, would you have any advice for anyone who wanted to start a podcast in 2023 or beyond? Oh boy. Um, it's, uh, I, I would just say, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm very good at giving advice. Uh, I think that it like truly is a matter of like, I don't know if don't like chase any sort of trend. Cause if you're chasing any sort of trend, um, chances are you will be outdone by a gigantic conglomerate that gets some famous person who barely knows what the fuck they're talking about to talk about the same thing. And it's such a challenging area right now that I feel like it's like, you have to, really love what you're talking about or who you're talking to or like the kinds of conversations you want to have. Um, because I think that that is, at least in my experience, that's been what people connect to the strongest of like, they, they care that you care. And, um, I feel like with, with the shows that I do, I, I really value the trust, um, built between me and listeners and that like, I'm like, all right, we're gonna talk about this this time and like let's see if you're interested and and i really appreciate that people are kind of willing to give stuff a shot that they wouldn't normally be willing to and i think a lot of that just has to do with like um really caring about it are you able to make make a living as a podcaster or do you or do you yes. have to have other things going on um, I am now, I have been able to for the last, I mean, since my year in Mensa is kind of when I was able to start making my living as a full-time podcaster, but I know that that is, I mean, I'm very privileged to get to do that and it, it's pretty rare. And I honestly think a lot of it was like the timing of like when I got, because I've been podcasting since 2016. So I've like been I feel like it makes me feel old. So it's like I've been whatever, like doing shows before there was a show about literally everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, it just felt like I, I definitely lucked out with the timing. And even then, it was like still over three years before I was able to, you know, make a living doing it. If you don't mind, how did that end up happening? When you did the Mensa show, did you have mm-hmm. sponsorship or? Or were you with mm-hmm. a network or were you just doing it like me right now? Independently? I was doing it. I was doing it totally independently. We were, um, I have a movie podcast called the Bechtel cast that my friend Caitlin Durante and I have been hosting since um, late 2016. And we had signed on to the how stuff works network in like two years after we started and then that company was swallowed whole by iHeartRadio and all of a sudden we're iHeartRadio. And, but like, we weren't really making very much money because we didn't mm. get a ton of advertisers. And, but I like 
my contract said like, oh, if you're going to make another show, you have to like pitch it to iHeartRadio first. So I pitched my year in Mensa to iHeartRadio and they essentially told me to go fuck myself. They're like, we don't know what that is. Like, <laughs> uh, best of luck mm-hmm. doing it um, by yourself. And so I did do it by myself. And then um, it ended up doing, I mean, to my surprise, ended up doing pretty well and then um i heard radio kind of like came back and was like actually we would like that <laughs> and, and um so and and that was all happening i mean that show came out at the beginning of 2020 and by the time they decided that they actually did want to pay me to do it it had already been out for a while and lockdown had started and so they i was basically offered this very very fortunate deal at a time i very much needed a full-time job that they were like, okay, we're going to essentially buy my year in Mensa from you and give you a contract so that you make, uh, I think it was originally like two more shows um, that are kind of these limited run narrative shows. And that was why I got to do Lolita podcast and ActCast. Um, so yeah, that was, um, it was again, just like a very bizarre uh, timing, but it, it, it ended up, I'm very grateful that they said no to my year in Mensa the first time, because it meant that like, I got to make my year in Mensa completely by myself. I had total creative control over it. And so then when they were like, will you make more? I got to be like, yes, but I, I get to pick who I work with. And like, I'm going to make it the way that I want to make it. And I don't want a bunch of weird development hands in this. And so to this day, it's, it's worked out great because it's me my producer and my editor. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, to bring it back around to Raw Dog, mm-hmm. I, I read it, an interview you gave a couple of years ago where you're actually in the interview. They're like, what do you, what do you think you're going to do next? And you're like, I, I'm really starting to get interested in hot dogs. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so to me. see that, like, <laughs> see out. how the sausage gets made in fact in an interview you're like i'm gonna do a thing about hot dogs i don't know what it's gonna be but i'm gonna look at all aspects of for a long time yeah oh that's wow i'm glad i said that out loud at some point it was definitely on my mind <laughs> so at what point did you decide at what point did it make sense to do it as a book and not a podcast um i kind of didn't i was just burned out on podcasts honestly like it's it's a real to make the kind of shows that I have made at iHeartRadio it's and make one a year it's a it's a pretty intense grind and um the good thing about doing a book I mean I always wanted to do it to write a book it felt like I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid like writing a book feels so like real and like mm-hmm. exciting and so I I I'd always wanted to write a book, but um, yeah, it also just meant that you just get a lot more time. Um, you don't get more money, but you do get a lot more time. And um, so, yeah. So then when I was sort of asked and again, but it's like, I wouldn't have been able to write a book if I hadn't done the podcast first, because it was sort of like, Hey, what's something that you would make into a podcast, make it into a book instead and see how it. And so I, then at that point, um, it was just getting like remotely safe to travel. And so I knew I wanted to do something that involved 
as much safe travel as I could do. And I knew I didn't want it to be, I, I mean, when I started it, I was in the middle of making act calf and I had finished Lolita podcast and Lolita podcast had like thoroughly destroyed my mental health. I'm like, well, it can't be that. It can't be so bone crushingly sad. Like it has to be fun <laughs> and it has to be something that I will be excited about for, you know, I didn't realize two years, but two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very glad that it was hot dogs. It felt like it was like all the things I was looking for. Well, Jamie Loftus, uh, congratulations on all of your success and the fact that so much of it is, has been accomplished on your own terms. Thank you. I feel, I feel very lucky. And I, um, I, I want, I want more creative people to like be able to do the kind of stuff that I've been lucky enough to do. So I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I don't know, Sarah Marshall and I talk about that a lot of like, we've both been very fortunate to get to make work on our own terms and it feels so much better and um, more creatives should sort of have that opportunity. Not everyone should have to like luck into it the way I feel like I, I sort of did. Well, just, just seeing and hearing and knowing that it's possible helps inspire someone else down the road. So thank you for doing that. I hope so. And thank you so Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out on, uh, on a busy schedule. Of course. Yeah. Now it's time to get pied in the face again. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. Theme music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.